to another edition of Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, where the driver's education program has really gone downhill in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 87, which begins with Max taking control of the cowhide car, and it ends with Ironbar struggling to keep up with the train. When we ended on Wednesday, Max had just brutally punched out the driver of the cowhide car and grabbed onto him. And at the very beginning of this minute, Max just tosses the guy out. Just full-on Indiana Jones, no ticket, boom, he's gone. Goodbye. Which, of course, leaves the driver's seat of the cowhide car wide open for Max to hop down into. And now that he's seated, he can take hold of the steering wheel. And we finally get Max as a driver again. Yeah. It only took us 87 minutes. (laughs) Max's prime quality is his ability to drive. And it takes us three minutes shy of an hour and a half to get him behind the wheel of an actual vehicle. Now, granted, he was sitting behind the wheel of his truck earlier when he disabled the bomb, but that doesn't count. He wasn't driving. It was parked the whole time. I guess what we can take from this is that it's not Max's only quality. He is good at other things, and we see him do lots of things in this movie that are his skill set. Yeah, he's versatile. He is. We also see him do some things that he's not so good at. Like keeping a secret? Right. (laughs) We don't really spend that much time with Max this minute. We just get to see the tail end of him commandeering a vehicle because we need to duck over to the other side of the train tracks where Screwloose has reached the front of the camel truck and he takes his seat where Max was sitting at the very beginning of this movie and he takes his place up there. On Wednesday, I mentioned a little bit about how Screwloose is emulating Max, has put Max in the position of being a role model. It occurs to me now that this is especially fitting because Max does have a reputation for being quite silent, and Screwloose has not said anything this entire movie. That's kind of his gimmick. It is. So that's definitely another parallel between the two. When we spoke with Shem a couple of weeks ago, several weeks ago now, we talked a little bit about how some people think that Screwloose is a proto-war boy. And I definitely see where they're coming from with that, with the white paint and everything, and the quasi-religious fervor. But now, especially in this chase scene, I definitely don't see him war boy like really much at all he's following the path of max more than a war boy Mm. he very much feels like if people wanted to if people really really wanted to draw this line that i'm about to draw for you they could that the tom hardy max isn't max that it's screw loose grown up and that he took max as a role model so seriously that he became that character, that Mm -hmm. he became just like him. Not a line that I really think I'm saying someone could draw that line based on these little bits and pieces that we're getting here of emulation. Yeah. Between the feral child theory and now the screw loose, I mean, we might as well just tack one more name onto the... (laughs) potential strained origin that people want to subscribe to when it comes to Tom Hardy's not my Max. It's like, 
how do you replace a character portrayed by another actor for three movies it's not easy lay off the guy <laughs> oh boy that'll be that will definitely be something very interesting and in depth that we'll get to talk about oh, when yeah. we start fury road next the comparisons year. are going to be many i can almost guarantee it at this point. yes getting back to screw loose he gets up on that seat and he pops his feet down and the guard who is driving the truck sees this guy, this random kid, plopped down in front of him, and so he thinks, oh, well, that's easy. I'll just grab onto him and try and apprehend them or something. Whatever guards do. Probably just wanted to capture him, throw him off his car type of thing. But Screwloose is not having any of that. You don't touch Screwloose unless Screwloose wants to be touched. And so he has his frying pan, and he raises it and then swings it right down, hitting the guard squarely in the face. And oh my god. Yeah, you want to talk about Three Stooges type shenanigans in this movie. Anytime Screwloose hits this guy in the face with the frying pan, the guard has this goofy expression on his face every time immediately after being hit. And he loses a tooth each time, right? Probably. I don't know if it's every time that he loses a tooth, but it's at least on one of them. Yeah. That he comes back with a giant hole in his dumb facey grin. <laughs> It would make sense for the guard to lose a tooth on this first swing, though, because as soon as it connects with him, that camel truck starts to swerve. And the truck swerves up in front of the generator train across the rails. Which feels like another incredibly lucky move. Yeah. Like Max falling onto the cowhide car. Yeah. There was really no reason for that to work out. <laughs> but yeah, the truck goes across the rails, which... Kind of flies in the face of me saying, oh, we're connecting with Screwloose on the other side of the trails. That was a misspeak on my mark. But Screwloose goes across the tracks and just keeps continuing on. And eventually the camel truck just kind of rubs up against another vehicle and stops. But what I like as the truck is going by is we get a quick shot of Pig Killer, Kusha, and Tubba in the front of the train car truck thing. And they're just watching him go. They're like, oh, where's Screwloose going? Because the train is on a set of tracks, Pig Killer really doesn't have to do anything. Is yeah. there even a gas pedal for him to use? Yeah, there's a gas pedal and a brake pedal. Okay. Yeah. So there's really no skill involved. He doesn't even have to pay attention. It's just go. So seeing interesting things happening around them that they can't influence at all, they're just sitting up there having a grand old time. Yeah. Kusha and Tubba really have the easiest job during this fight. They, they're just along for the ride. They really are. Yeah. Which is a shame. I think the visuals, and before I actually say this out loud, I do realize that George Miller used these visuals in the next movie, but the visuals of a pregnant woman being badass would have been amazing. And I know that those visuals were used in the next movie, but there was no reason that they couldn't have been used in this movie. Yeah. It would have been very, very cool for Kusha to play more of a role in defending the train. And it could have been really easy. I think Tubba and Kusha, they got into the train initially, not expecting to have to fight off people. I think if they knew that they were going to be in a situation where they could contribute to the situation, that they would have chosen different places to sit. Because Tubba is a warrior. 
he may be the least among the warriors, and that's why he was sent along, but he had warrior experience, and he probably could have helped in some way. Kusha definitely would have wanted to help. She seems to have that personality back when she stood up to Slake and was willing to go with Savannah despite everybody being upset about the idea. Yeah, Tubba, when he left the group and followed after Max and Anna Goanna, he left with weapons, with long spears. Those would have been so handy right now in his position at the front of that truck, just sticking those spears out the windows, killing people. Yeah, even if he's just poking at them, it'd be a lot more effective than him just sitting there in the front. With a dumb grin. Yeah. It's almost like they're not in the mindset of we're in a fight. They may not be. They're sitting in a big metal box, completely protected, more or less protected. Like, we're going to see later on, may not be as protective as you might think, but they're probably just enjoying themselves. The scenes that we have been seeing for a couple of minutes now, back in the caboose, with the frying pan and people climbing on, jumping off, falling off. They haven't seen any of that. They don't, don't know any of that. I don't think they have rearview mirrors. Well, they certainly don't have a middle mirror. Right. But the side mirrors, probably not. This isn't a truck. It's a train. Does a train really need to know who else is around them? No. If not they really. did, they couldn't do anything about it. Really, the most important thing is, is there anybody in front of me coming at me? Yeah. And I suppose, is there anybody behind me going faster than me? Yeah. Which they don't really seem to have a mechanism to know that. And if they're the only train around, then they don't have to worry about any of that. Which is definitely not the case production-wise. It's always funny to watch the behind-the-scenes documentary for Thunderdome and have them get to the part where they're filming these scenes and they get all set up for the shot and then they have to stop and move everything out of the way so an actual real train can go by. Right. And then they have to go through all this effort to reset everything. Right, and in productions that aren't based around a train, they lay down track. That reminds me of a quick little story from the movie Sweet Home Alabama with Reese Witherspoon. Okay. And there's a point near the end of the movie where her fiancé is walking off after a fight, and she is chasing after him, trying to get him to stay, and she actually trips on the track for the camera, and they leave it in the movie because it accentuates her desperation huh. that she trips okay. and stumbles as she's running after him. Hmm. So when you think about the different positions that people are in, Max is off in his vehicle, Screwloose has commandeered, more or less, a vehicle of his own, Tubba and Kusha are in the cab, Savannah is somewhere climbing around the edge, and I think Anna, Eddie, and Skyfish are still in the caboose. It kind of makes me wonder, in this situation, where would you see yourself? Probably in the cab of the truck. You would have called shotgun and gone right for it? Yes, because I like being in the front seat. I do not like sitting in the back seat. I like being at the forefront of where we are going. So I probably would have pretty quickly, once people were starting to board the train, jumped in the front seat. I think I would have gone for the caboose. I think I would have jumped on the back there. Just because there's probably a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah. To find. I think I would have jumped in the cab and I would have regretted it. Yeah. Because now that we've seen all the stuff that's happening, knowing that, my choice would have been to jump in the back. What's unfortunate is that there's so many little storage spots, little boxes and pots and pans and things in that cab that we don't see more improvised weapons. Yeah, those bottles 
those could have been broken and used to fend off attackers. Even if you're not breaking them to try and stab someone like a bar fight, just pick them up and throw them. Yeah. Not all of those cars are completely enclosed, and not all of those cars that are mostly enclosed are completely sealed. You start throwing stuff at people, they're going to get annoyed by it and probably give you a little bit of breathing room. What's really unfortunate is that they don't have any of those spears that Tubba brought along because they probably used most of them to make the improvised sled that they dragged Gecko with. And then they left all that stuff behind when they left Gecko behind. Very true. Because Tubba doesn't have any of his spears when they're crawling around in Underworld. True, true. And someone who didn't know the Gecko storyline would wonder where they went. I assumed, because I forgot about Gecko, as we all do. <laughs> Everybody forgot about Gecko. Yeah. I assumed that he left them behind in the tunnel because they became an inconvenience. Yeah. They're too long to really maneuver well in the tunnel and in the awkward space of Underworld. Yeah, you remember those shots of Anna trying to crawl through the tunnels with Gecko's sonic stick thing? Exactly. Really cumbersome maneuver. Yeah, and Anna held on to the sonic staff because it was Gecko's. Again, if you didn't read the screenplay, you wouldn't know why she was carrying that at all. It was never her object. Mm -hmm. So why is she all of a sudden bringing it along? Yeah. If they did have those spears, though, they could have fashioned some sort of Maybe improvised explosive. Maybe Master had some sort of chemicals in the back of his caboose and he could put the chemicals into a jar and they could tie the jar to the front of the spear and they could throw the stick with the little explosive at the end. Basically foreshadowing all of those boom poles or whatever they're called in Fury Road. <laughs> I can't imagine that there were no proper weapons in that caboose. There had to have been. There was so much stuff. Some of it had to be actual weapons. Yeah. Knives or, gosh, forks. Forks would have been useful. There are so many weapons, so many firearms that Auntie's guard carry. It would be surprising if Master didn't have like an ornate little Derringer style pistol somewhere in that cabin. I'd say Derringer style. That way it's small enough that he could he could use it himself. And it's a shame that we never actually get to see the guards use their weapons outside of Iron Bar. I think he's the only one that successfully really fires a weapon. Besides Max at the beginning of the movie. Mm. But you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. You know, speaking of firearms, the subject comes up a lot when we're talking about Mad Max. Guns are a part of his story. But... It seems really not often are they actually used. I mean, has anybody actually died from a gunshot in Since... all three movies so far? Oh, well, they definitely died of gunshots in the second movie. Remember the guy that got blasted through the side window? Okay. Okay, I'll give you him. But in the first movie, did anybody was anybody actually shot? Bubba Zanetti? Okay. I'm just saying the ratio of guns to gun deaths is oh it's incredibly one-sided yeah yes for all the talk of guns that we do talking about what they are and their capabilities and could that shot really have hurt somebody people generally don't actually get shot in these movies well you're right there a lot of the times they're just used in a threatening manner they're mm -hmm. not usually ever shot but there are plenty of people that two well those are two off the top of my head okay i mean if you want to go back and listen to the old episodes you're more than welcome to <laughs> 
have that type of time. <laughs> Back on the camel car, the guard who is driving recovers from being hit in the face with the frying pan and he's now back sitting up and screw loose knowing that the frying pan was so effective the first time swings down hits the guy in the face again this time causing him to completely fall over and as screw loose looks down he sees that this guard was holding on to a wheel and he looks around and sees that all of the other people in cars are holding on to wheels and so he holds the frying pan out in front of him like a steering wheel. At the risk of beating a dead horse. Which we've never done before. No. I want to take this example and apply it to Gecko. We're going to beat that dead horse. <laughs> that screw loose, he's mimicking something that he sees, but he doesn't know why. He just has a vague understanding of, well, everybody else is doing it. So I'm going to do it. Yeah. And it's the same thing with all the, the Sonic stuff. Gecko saw it somewhere, maybe didn't understand it, but decided he wanted to mimic it. So same thing here. It seems to be mostly how the kids have functioned for so long is that they see something or they hear something and they don't understand it, but they mimic it anyways. That sounds pretty standard to me. That does seem a lot like how children learn. It's why we can't use curse words when we're over at my friend's house. Exactly. And it's funny how there's the old adage where the scolding parent goes, well, if all of your friends were jumping off a bridge, would you jump off a bridge too? And the kid's supposed to say no. But children learn through example and mimicry. So a student of anthropology would say, well, yeah, that's how kids learn. They look at the behavior of the group and then emulate accordingly, mm -hmm. based on depictions of a success, which is exactly what Screwloose is doing. He just happens to be holding on to the wrong wheel at this moment. And whether it's on purpose or not, the wheel is round. Do you think he holds it up because it's round, or just because it's the object that he has? I think he looks at the steering wheels in the cars, and he looks down at the frying pan, and since they are both round, that's why he holds it up. Okay, he so he's making the shape connection. Yeah, he okay. thinks, I'm in a seat in front of the car, he's in a seat in the front of the car, he's holding something round, I've got something round, and then he looks around him and he realizes, oh, there's nothing connecting it's this not... round thing to the vehicle. Right, it's not doing anything. So he abandons the frying pan, hopefully he doesn't need eggs made anytime soon or something like that, and he leaps down from the seat and he bends over... He, he grabs the steering wheel. He abandons the idea of mimicry altogether and goes at this the most awkward way that he possibly can. There's an easy way, and then there's Screwloose's way. Uh-huh. And this car is just speeding along with this kid bent half over, reaching backwards down through what would be a windscreen if it was actually there. And he's just tooling along, fine as you please. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, this shot of Screwloose kind of driving away, I think it's the last time we actually see Screwloose until he shows up after they've found Jedediah. Ah, okay. We'll have to watch out for him. Yeah, because I'm looking forward to the minutes ahead and I'm not seeing a lot of Screwloose driving around. Well, that's a shame. Because now that he's got control of a vehicle, he could be doing something with it, but he just kind of drives yeah. away. Screwloose is proving to be a rather interesting character that he hasn't been in the past. So we haven't really referred back to the books at all this week. I think because 
at least on the storybook side of things, not much is different. No, the same is true for the novelization. Things happen pretty much exactly the same. Really, the only difference is in the description of what's going through people's heads a little bit. As Max is doing his thing, fighting with the guard and then falling onto the cowhide car and then losing his jacket, it notes that the tribe is looking out the windows, watching in amazement at what Max is doing. Again, this is stuff they've never seen before. Yeah. Someone fight like this? This is all new to them, and they're very interested in it. And then when Screwloose, who it's pointed out, sees Max doing it, so he's like, well, I can do that too. And he goes to the other side and does the same thing. All of the kids run to the other side of the train and watch out the window in amazement as Screwloose does the same thing. So just a little bit more thought process is explained there. And then again, as Screwloose goes to use the frying pan as a wheel, he realizes that something is missing from this whole equation. Yeah. He sees the people around him and knows that he's not doing something that they are doing in this whole scenario. So then he uses the frying pan as a steering wheel and he grins because he thinks he's found the secret. This a magic control. Yeah. Until he realizes that, no, I didn't. It's not enough. And he tries something else. Yeah. In the storybook, it basically has Screwloose jump onto Max's vehicle, knock out the guard, and then he just sits there grinning to himself, enjoying the wild ride. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a sense of a wild ride. It's a much more close call with the train as Screwloose's truck jumps the tracks. Yeah. And it's something that actually the trio in the front actually notice and shut their eyes in anticipation. <laughs> Expecting the train to hit the truck? Yes. Yeah, we don't get any of that in the storybook. It just cuts straight to Iron Bar, who is as I mentioned at the top of this episode, struggling to keep up. Which is totally predictable. It's man against the machine here. And I know that story goes that the man won, but he didn't really. I mean, at the end of that story, didn't the man die? Are you talking about the legend of John Henry versus the yeah. iron driving thing? Yeah. At least in one telling of it, John Henry died from the exertion. He was successful in beating the machine, but he died from the exertion. So yeah, it turns out I was remembering it wrong. All right. When I think of John Henry and all them, I think of the Disney movie Tall Tale from 1995. Yes. It starred Patrick Swayze as Pecos Bill, Oliver Platt was Paul Bunyan, and Roger Aaron Brown was John Henry. And in that movie, they show John Henry against the steam driving machine, splitting boulders and things like that. And in the movie, John Henry loses to the machine as far as driving a stake into stone first or something like that. And then John Henry is so upset that he lost that he gives one big swing of his hammer and it completely splits the rock in two or something like that. It's been a while since I watched that movie, but that's what I think of. But in the legend, yeah, he actually beats the machine, but then dies of exertion because of it. So let us hope that Iron Bar is familiar with that legend and knows that you may beat the machine, but it may cost you your life. Yeah, I don't know about that. Well, he does have, what, seven lives left? <laughs> so he can spend one beating the machine. <laughs> oh, that pretty much brings us to the end of the week 
here. We get to spend quite a bit of time with Iron Bar tomorrow because he is on that handcart and he's getting tired and so he's waving to someone behind him to hurry up and get him off of this thing. Oh, shocker. He'd rather be in a vehicle than on this velocipede? Yes. You will be very satisfied when we go through Monday's Minute. I am so sure. Good. So normally this is the part of a Friday episode where I start talking about our weekend show, Anarchy Road, but as you heard last week, we've wrapped up Hook. There's no more Hook to go through five minutes at a time. So at this point, we took a step back and looked at Anarchy Road and did a bit of an evaluation on it. And we've decided that although Hook was a good experience... We had a lot of fun doing it, and we sincerely appreciate everybody that went to the Patreon to check it out. We are going to put the weekend show more or less on hold. We're not going to keep doing it over the hiatus or the rest of the movie or anything like that, but we're not throwing it out completely. Certainly not. For starters, Hook is still going to be there. If anybody wants to listen to our season of Hook, contribute at the $3 level, you can just download the whole thing at once Mm -hmm. for three bucks. And there you go. And as far as the future goes, who knows? One of the biggest reasons why we are not continuing with Anarchy Road is because I produce it, which I have loved doing. It's been a lot of work, but that work has been very good for me. It has opened my eyes to how much work you put into our minute by minute show. But I would like to go back to school. I would like to advance my career, and to do so, I need some more education. Mm -hmm. And as anybody out there who has ever produced a podcast knows, it's very difficult to do both. Yeah. So for now, I'm going to choose education and go back to school. So like Julia said, if you've never taken the time to go listen to our coverage of Hook Five Minutes at a Time and you feel like you want to dive into that, go in, just give us three bucks. We'll give you your own RSS feed. You can throw it into your podcatcher, download the entire season all at once, and then withdraw your support. Or if you just want to contribute at a different level, that's open too. If you don't feel like doing a recurring thing, you can go to our website, donate specifically from there for a one-time. And if you go to our website, donate there, Let me know, and I'll send you a link to download the entire season of Hook. If that's how you want to go it, I'll work with you. Just let me know. (laughs) If you want to know how to get a hold of me, that's all in the ending blurb that we play at the end of every episode. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. At me, somehow. Whichever way you want, really. Coming up on Monday, it's more or less Iron Bar's greatest minute of this movie. He rises so high in his effectiveness and his ability. Unfortunately, it's also kind of his lowest moment. It's definitely a situation where his best laid plans kind of blow up in his face. It'll be a blast, (laughs) I guess is what I'm trying to say. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, is presented by Kennedy Miller Mitchell Productions, and distributed by Warner Brothers. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Tee Public storefront by clicking the store link 
link, join our Patreon by clicking the support link, or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link. Thank you for joining us for Minute 87 of Beyond Thunderdome. We'll see you next time.